To take care of our health, we must first be alive. Well, now there's an original statement. It was made by an archbishop at the 2021 Assembly of the Pontifical Academy for Life, which took place this past fall in Rome. The theme of the assembly was to discuss not only COVID-19, but the global challenge that the pandemic poses for a more equitable distribution of treatment and health care in the world. Hello everyone, Peggy Stanton here, your host on this show, A Place of Peace. Certainly one of the reasons America today cannot be called a place of peace is our fractured view of life and death. Never, I think, has the dichotomy of that vision been more evident than our nearly two-year struggle with COVID-19. To preserve life, supposedly, the world literally shut down, while at the same time our national government passionately defends the right to kill innocent babies in their mother's wombs, and state governments proclaim the right to take the life of capital offenders in prison, some of whom have been innocent of the crimes of which they are charged. How do we explain such divided thinking? Our guest today, Dale Resanella, is an expert on the subject of capital punishment. An international business lawyer by profession, since 1990 he has sought to bring peace to inmates on Florida's death row, serving as spiritual counselor and Catholic correctional chaplain in Florida's prisons. He ministers cell to cell to the 400 men on death row and the 2,000 men in solitary confinement. In addition, for 23 years, he has served in tandem with his wife, Dr. Susan Russinella, ministering as a team during executions. He, as a spiritual advisor to the condemned, she, as a lay minister to the condemned's family and loved ones. What a needed, but Oh, so difficult job. Brother Dale, as he likes to be called, is the author of numerous books, perhaps the most dramatic, Now I Walk on Death Row, the story of his amazing conversion from international lawyer to prison chaplain. Welcome, Brother Dale. So nice to have you again on the show. Thank you, Peggy, and it's wonderful to be with you and your listeners again. Would you, as uh, our resident chaplain on this show, <laughs> please uh, <laughs> offer a prayer that we get off on the right foot? Absolutely. Let us pause for a moment and make ourselves especially aware of God's presence in our life and in our world. And in Jesus Christ's name and by the power of his cross and his resurrection, we ask that all of us, Peggy, I, and all those listening and working with this show, will be filled with the healing power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, with the love of our Father in Heaven, and with the power of the Holy Spirit to persevere in faith, hope, and joy. And that everything we do will be shaped by the words and deeds of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ 
and under the protective hands of our Holy Mother Mary, whose solemnity we celebrate today. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we can't fail to have a wonderful show after a prayer like that, Brother Dale. Thank you so much. Absolutely. You know, the last time we conversed, you were on a a previous show that I hosted, A Power from the Pews, and this is your first time on A Place of Peace. So would you just briefly revisit for our listeners um, your conversion because I, I, that is an amazing story. But I know we want to talk about a lot of other things today, so we'll make it brief, but I do want, I do want people to know the long distance you traveled <laughs> to be where you are. Well, you know, I'm not so much focused on the distance I traveled as on the perseverance God displayed in continuing to accompany me until I finally turned in his direction. (laughs) (laughs) And he was still there. (laughs) Sounds uh, the hound of heaven, right? The hound of heaven, yes. I was raised in a first-generation Italian Catholic family, the eldest of eight children, in a wonderful family in Detroit. Parents both very devout and uh, strong, strong devotion to Our Lady of the Snows. So... I had a tremendous upbringing for faith, but once I got out of law school and into adult life, uh, I just have to admit my focus was money. I was handling Wall Street finance out of Florida, and uh, I loved what I was doing, and it was well compensated, and uh, I was working like crazy, but... It's not that I was doing bad things. I was doing good things. Schools, Mm -hmm. hospitals, Mm -hmm. uh, aircraft, vessels, seaports, airports, Mm -hmm. sports stadiums. These are things that are good because they allow us as communities at different levels Mm -hmm. to participate and be together and do things in common. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the problem was that my heart wasn't focused on those good things that was fine. My mm-hmm. heart was focused on the Making money. Making money. <laughs> Making yeah. money. And uh, God, I think I took his patience to the limit, <laughs> and uh, he allowed me to come face-to-face with all this through what people call a near-death experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Mine was occasioned by a flesh-eating bacteria called Vibrio vulnificans, which I ingested from a bad oyster in 1988. Mm -hmm. It was brand new in Florida, this bacteria, and uh, they didn't know much about it, but what they did know was that about six weeks after I had ingested it, that uh, I was all done. The bacteria had won, as the doctor said, and I had lost, and I would be dead by midnight. Oh, my gosh. You were not sick up until six weeks after, or were you... No, no, no. I was sick, but they didn't know what I had. Ah, They were trying to figure out what I had. Okay. And finally, after six weeks, I'm in the hospital, uh, the regional hospital here in Tallahassee, and uh, and they said, you know, it's all over. You're done. The oyster won, and you lost, and uh, you will be dead by midnight, and... uh, the doctor actually said, I thought it must be only on TV and in movies, right? <laughs> uh, get your affairs in order. <laughs> oh, oh, my. They really you say get, that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, 
My You've got a couple hours to do it. <laughs> and that's about it, yes. And because uh, at this point it was about 6, 7 in the evening, mm-hmm. my wife had summoned our pastor, Father Michael Foley, and mm-hmm. he's still our pastor now. And uh, he uh, had come and had given me what at that time we, we were still calling the last rites, those of us who served Mass in Latin mm-hmm. yeah. uh, before 1964. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, I remember it well. (laughs) Yes. And uh, I kissed my wife goodbye. Wow. Wow. I had a very high fever. I was having trouble keeping my eyes open. I was having trouble making sense out of anything. And uh, I kissed Susan goodbye. I remember that. And as I lost the battle to keep my eyes open and Mm -hmm. my eyes closed, I, I... remember thinking I would never see her again in this world. Wow, wow. And in the course of that night, I had an incredible experience. I believe it was real. Some people say, well, it must have been a, a vision. Well, mm. whatever. God can do it any way he wants. But right. uh, he got my attention. <laughs> and I found myself standing before Jesus Christ. And uh, wow. he was asking me to account mm. for what I'd done with his mm. gifts. And uh, I knew what I'd done. <laughs> I was making piles of money. Yeah, right. But I didn't want to say that. So I gave all my, I call them my uh, my American dream justifications. Uh, uh, you know, building up a net worth to take care yeah. of the family, making sure the kids will have plenty of money to go to college yeah. and uh, professional school and all good things. Yeah, right. The problem wasn't that I was making good money. The problem was that my heart was not focused on the things of God. Mm-hmm. And after this exchange that took place between Jesus and I, which, by the way, Peggy, it yeah. never felt like judgment. Huh. It was huh. like, it, it reminded me of sitting with my dad to account for what I'd done with the money he had given me mm-hmm. to take care of something. And I, yeah. you know, he wanted to know, what did I do with the money? Mm-hmm. Uh, because the bill didn't get paid. <laughs> you know, when you're yeah. in ninth uh, right. grade or tenth grade. Right. And so anyway, it was very much like that, yeah. right. rather than okay. judgment. Huh. And finally, Jesus said, Dale, what about all my people who are suffering? Hmm. And in that moment, I saw my choices completely differently than I'd ever seen them before. Hmm. Now, I'd heard the Gospels. Yeah. It was all in the Gospels. We, you know, they're, they're read in church. Yeah. I frequently was going to daily Mass. I'd been to, in uh, Catholic school from first grade through the end of law school. Right. I'd heard the Gospels. Mm-hmm. But I never thought about them the way I was thinking about them after Jesus addressed that question to me. Hmm. What about all my people who are suffering? And did you respond to that? Well, first, uh, I was dealing with this wave Hmm. of shame I was feeling for Hmm. not having even thought about them. Yeah. And then I looked at him and I said, I promise you, give me another chance. And I'll do it different. Oh. And that was the end of the experience. Huh. Now, not a real eloquent argument for a guy who went to a national law school. I did go to Notre Dame Law School. (laughs) Yeah, and Uh, graduated magna cum laude. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Uh, It was probably the most eloquent closing argument I've ever made. 
because it was extremely short and to the point. Yeah, I was going to say, that's and all you needed to say. <laughs> that's all I needed to say. And uh, the experience ended. Without an answer from Jesus. <laughs> not No answer in terms of words. Yeah. When I opened my eyes in the morning and I looked at Susan, who was still sitting next to my bed waiting for me to flatline. Uh-huh. I'm still here. <laughs> I said... Well, first I said, I'm not dead, am I? <laughs> and she said, obviously you're not dead, you're still talking. This is a, uh, a, a woman who is a saint and long-suffering with a husband who, as a lawyer, never stopped talking. <laughs> oh, right. And I might say, Dale, as an Italian, uh, they'll be talking even after they're dead, right? Exactly. And moving their hands. That's when I told her what I had experienced. And 48 or 72 hours later, I was discharged from the hospital. Oh, my gosh. The bacteria was gone. Wow. A miracle. But my innards were so destroyed, I could hardly stand up. Uh. And as it turned out, it took over a year. Wow to get enough stamina and to build up my strength and try to get back to some mm. semblance of what I had been in terms yeah. of stamina and yeah. being able to do things, yeah. it took over a year. Oh, my and gosh. during that time, Susan and I were asking the question, where are these people Jesus was talking about? Because they weren't on our route. Mm-hmm. We lived in the power neighborhood at that time and mm. in the state's capital, Tallahassee. Mm -hmm. We had built ourselves a mini mansion in uh, the neighborhood in the state capital. Mm. And uh, the people Jesus was talking about weren't people that we were coming in contact with. And our pastor, God bless him, uh, suggested we might start real slow because we had five kids. Yeah, right. Uh, he said, you've got five kids in tow. They can't live on your faith or what you've experienced. Mm -hmm. You have to keep your eyes on them mm -hmm. and make sure that whatever choices you're making are good for them. Mm -hmm. Incredible advice. Right. Great advice. Right. And he recommended we start out in a soup kitchen, mm -hmm. which we did. We started going down as a family. And uh, the soup kitchen at Good News Ministries at that time in the poorest neighborhood and difficult neighborhood mm -hmm. in the city, right. served lunch, and the co-cathedral, St. Thomas More, across the street from FSU, served a dinner to the street people. Mm -hmm. And we started going several times a week, whichever one we could make work with the kids' schedules and ours, uh, to be in the soup kitchen helping, mm -hmm. either at lunch or at dinner. Mm -hmm. And we started meeting the people Jesus had been talking about. And, of mm -hmm. course, you know the story. That that led into AIDS ministry because the homeless on the streets were being devoured by HIV. Mm -hmm. And uh, there wasn't any good answers at that time. Mm -hmm. And we started making ourselves available to serve as buddies to the people dying of AIDS. This mm -hmm. is... Uh, back in the late 80s. and um, Which took I, some courage because um, I, remember the, I remember the fear of, the, of AIDS that was there originally until they it was, re realized. It was, it was real. 
Right. It was real. And uh, we took the state training. Susan and I both believe on getting equipped to do what you're going to try and do. Mm -hmm. uh, make sure you know what you need to do and how to do it as wisely as possible. Nothing's risk-free. And so I took the training to work as a buddy with the person dying of AIDS, to literally be their companion through their death. Wow. Susan took the training to work with their families and their caregivers mm -hmm. who are traumatized by all this. And Susan's got a doctorate in psychology. She wasn't using that for this work. But you bring those, you bring all that training with you, mm -hmm. and so that's what we did for ten years. Mm. I was a buddy to the person dying of the disease, and Susan was accompanying their loved ones. So you we were still dreamed. practicing law, though. You were still practicing still law. Still practicing law, okay. and then uh, I went to part time. And then in 1996, we went overseas to Rome. Mm -hmm. And we were hosted by two communities. Uh, first, uh, the Catholische Integrierte Gemeinde, whose mm -hmm. charism is theology, mm -hmm. renewing the theology of the church for modern man. Mm -hmm. And then Sant'Egidio, whose charism is relieving the suffering of the poor and the destitute and the people on the margins. Mm -hmm. So we spent time with each of those while we were in Rome, and while we were there, we were getting a tremendous experience of the worldwide Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of American seminarians or former American seminarians who are now American priests mm -hmm. who are spending time in Rome. They're studying right. at the Gregorian. They're, they're doing, working at the dicasteries. They're doing all sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. And word got out that three blocks from St. Peter's there was an apartment and there was a woman from the United States who knew how to make American cheeseburgers and french fries. <laughs> now, We've never written about this, but you know, that can become a ministry if you're taking care of the needs of American seminarians and American priests who are dying. Dying for a hamburger. <laughs> a hamburger and french fries. Now, the food in Rome is unbelievable. Yeah, uh, I, you know, I mean, it's fantastic. Right. right. But if you haven't had a hamburger or a cheeseburger <laughs> or a french fry for two years, that can taste pretty good. Yeah. And so we found ourselves, we were meeting people from the mission fields mm. all over the world, places in the world we'd never even heard of. Oh, and they were sharing their stories yeah. and sharing their experiences with us. And our kids were with us. And so that little apartment kind of became a clearinghouse for testimonies over cheeseburgers and french fries <laughs> the kind of things people could do for God if they were willing to put it all on the line. And we were always asking, now, what can a family with children do? How does this all fit together if you're a couple with five children? What does that look and like? by the time we came back from Rome, we were asking the bishops in North Florida... We have the two dioceses, St. Augustine and the Diocese of Pensacola, Tallahassee. Mm -hmm. What could the church use us to do? And what they needed immediately was a layman who, with his wife, would commit long-term to handle everything on death row in Florida that you didn't have to be a priest or a deacon to handle. 
Oh, wow. Huh? And that's you, a, that's yeah. a question that we were asked. Yeah. And we discerned it. We prayed about it. We talked with our spiritual advisors. And uh, our conclusion was this is what God had prepared us for. So that was 1998. And my first day on death row in Florida was August of 98. Now, if I had known anything about death row, I would have started in January. There's no air conditioning or air <laughs> in the death rows in the south in the summer. And uh, I could not believe the uh, the heat. And so, but that, that's how we started. And the rest kind of just unfolded. And then God sent other people to help. And uh, we were asked to train volunteers. And then the bishops asked me if I could write a book that would help prepare Catholic lay people for ministry in prisons and jails. Not as cowboys or solos, but working in tandem, in union with their priests, their pastoral leaders, the consecrated men and women that the church has in some of these positions, working with them and doing what lay people can do. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we've been doing since 1998 until now. Somewhere along the line, you had to give up your law practice, right? Or do you still do some of that along with all this work in the prisons? It's interesting how God takes care of that because I've had several invitations over the last 25 years. You know, are you ready to come back? Uh, yeah. we got some deals that you, that you could handle. Mm-hmm. And the Department of Corrections, when I was first presented to them by the Catholic Church mm-hmm. through Father Joe, as the successor to Father Joe for everything except canonical sacraments, mm-hmm. Department of Corrections said, no way. He's a lawyer. We can't let a lawyer walk around inside our two highest security prisons at Cellfront. And they weren't worried about getting sued. They were worried that people were going to ask me to represent them on their case. And when I said uh, no, yeah. somebody would stick a shiv in me. Oh, Well... Uh-huh. That turned out to be a very legitimate concern. I've had several very difficult conversations with inmates uh, explaining why I can't represent them. But the department made it very easy. I cut a deal with them, and and it's never been in writing, but both sides have adhered to it. I said, look, I'll refrain from all practice of law so long as I'm coming inside your prisons for the church. If I ever go back to practicing law, I will notify you and surrender my credentials to go into your prisons. And that was the deal we cut. Now, they were very explicit in our discussion. Uh, We don't have a writing, but I bet it's on tape. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, they made it clear, you can't handle a parking ticket for a priest or a bishop. You can't handle a will. You can't handle anything. If a lawyer does it, you can't do it. But they agreed I could keep my license and I have to take my continuing legal education credits to get recertified every mm-hmm. three years. Because if anything happened to Susan's ability to provide an income we can live on, my first responsibility is to provide for us. Well, that's what I was Don't wondering. You've got five children. So. Yes, and uh, I had had a very successful career. But at some point, even that money runs out. And so the plan was that we would live on Susan's earnings from her profession as a psychologist and that... If we ever needed for me to go back to working in my profession as a lawyer in order to support us because Susan couldn't carry it, then I would no longer be available to do this. And the family felt extremely good about that choice. 
We voted on it. We discerned it. Susan and I still believe it was the right choice. And the church has felt very good about it. And the Department of Corrections has lived up to their commitment. I'm not going to say that they're always happy to see me because I do write articles in Catholic publications about the death penalty. Mm. And uh, sometimes they don't like what I say. But I never use any information from the cases I'm familiar with or the men that I'm familiar with, I don't use anything that would be a violation of privilege, a violation of confidence, or a violation of HIPAA and all the other regulations that we have to work under inside these institutions. So it has lasted long term. I've, I've been doing it for the church for 24 years now. And you really answered the call of Christ when he uh, says in the gospel to the the rich young man, if you would be perfect, sell all you have and come follow me. I always remember that in the book that you really questioned it. And you followed it. It's an amazing story, really. But brother, well, I'm told that, but as we were doing it, we didn't feel like we were giving anything up. Our life kept getting better and better in terms of being more at peace and happy in our house and in every place we went outside our house. Isn't it interesting that when you the outside world thinks you're giving up so much to follow our Lord, that's really when the adventure begins, and there's so much <laughs> right drama and joy and excitement in it that uh, your life just really takes off. But uh, uh, some people looking from the outside wouldn't see that. But you know what? We've now concentrated on that story, which is so remarkable that we used up our half hour on this show. You have to come back, and we have to cover the subject of the death penalty. Will you do that, Brother Dale? Absolutely. Uh, may I close with a quote from Pope Francis in a letter he wrote to me uh, after we came back from Rome okay. uh, this past fall. He said, Thank you for taking care of our brothers on death row. Thank you for your tenderness, compassion, and closeness to them. I pray for you and for the inmates you take care of, and you and them, please pray for me. We have been talking with Brother Dale Bresanella, who is a Catholic correctional chaplain to the men on death row in Florida and those in solitary confinement, and a truly extraordinary ministry bringing peace to the hearts of these men. Thank you so much, and please join us next week on A Place of Peace.